Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Double Check. I am Colin Schultz. And I'm Brett Cox. Well, yeah, welcome you on in to the program. Uh, be sure and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a rating there. Uh, make sure it's a five-star rating. Otherwise, uh, we'll just be inclined to think that you're a hater. Yeah, and there's exciting news, Colin, because we are on like eight different platforms now. It's like we're a legit podcast now. Legit? After one episode? Yeah. I mean, it's the sky's the limit here, Brett. Yeah. Sky's the limit. Uh, but make sure you do subscribe and rate. We'd also love to hear from you. Uh, I think we have an email address set up if you want to write to us. Yeah. Uh, outside of leaving a message to, uh, to us on uh, wherever you get your podcast, you can also email us. Yeah, and our email is doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. So write to us. Let us know what you think. Hit us up with any questions that you have. We are so thankful that you are coming back and uh, giving us another listen after the first run here. Also, uh, make sure that you share us uh, with friends and family. If you're enjoying the podcast, recommend us to a friend. There's multiple ways that you can do that. And Brett, I know you said that there's 18 platforms that uh, that people can listen to this podcast on. Just run down a few of what those are. Yeah, so some of the big ones we have is Apple Podcasts. That's the biggest podcast producer uh, that we have platform. So you can subscribe to us there. You also have Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Anchor, um, are just four out of the many different platforms that you can listen to us on. Excellent. Uh, well, sh- so should we get to it? Yeah, let's go ahead and get to it. All right. So uh, this is the official opening coin flip. I flipped it in episode one. So episode two, I guess we'll do like evens and odds. The odd number episodes, Brett is going to do the coin toss and I'm going to call it. Uh, do you want me to call it in the air or am I calling it before or what are we doing here? Uh, you can call it in the air. All right, let's All right, go. here we go. Three, two, one. Tails. And it is tails today. Tails. All right. So All right. You choose to go or defer? We're going to defer. Defer. All right. So we're going to start with uh, with my thesis today. And if you remember from last week, we had a great discussion about feelings and their role in determining God's call on our lives, both overall and about specific things and moments. We talked extensively about how our feelings and emotions are tools that God has given us in discerning a call. And we agreed that emotions and feelings have way too much sway in our culture. If something doesn't feel good, we don't want to do it. And if it does make us feel good, we want to do it. There's a lot that we can talk about with our emotions, and maybe one day we will get to discussing them even more. But as we think about our feelings and emotions in relation to a call from God, let's focus in on our forward-thinking emotions. When we talk about trying to discern a call on our lives, we are thinking about the future, what I should or shouldn't do. It's a decision about what is coming up in our lives and which way we are about to go, as opposed to being a pure reaction to something that has already happened. The Bible has something to say about our forward-thinking emotions. In 1 Timothy 3.1, the Apostle Paul is writing about eldership and pastorship. Most people have heard or think that being a church elder or a pastor should be a calling from God. So this is going to be a good place for us to see something about God's calling and perhaps apply a principle for us, even if we aren't as varsity as the folks he's talking about are, these elders and pastors. So Paul writes and confirms a saying going around the church then, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. That word, aspire, to have the feeling of aspiration, 
is confirmed by Paul to be a good thing. The desire to do noble work is a good feeling to have. So yes, your feelings can indicate a call from God, and rightly so, as God has gifted us with them for a certain reason. Now, secular humanism would be satisfied with saying that we can achieve goodness, morality, and self-fulfillment without God's. Our feelings and intellect can take us where we need to go. But let's consider what a Christian worldview says about our nature, the human nature that we are born with and shapes all that we think and do and feel. If you are a Christian, you explicitly recognize that we are messed up people with messed up hearts. Even if you aren't a Christian, you witness and feel the effects of this messed up nature. You see it in everyone around you. All of us get defensive and say that we aren't like that. Culture feeds us this. But deep down, we know that that's just a charade. We are just as messed up as everyone else. The prophet Jeremiah writes about this. Chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is confirming what we already thought, but he expounds and makes a stronger stand. Our hearts are most deceitful. After this verse, he talks about God examining the mind and testing the heart to give each according to his way. The illustration he uses speaks of someone who has amassed a fortune, which is in and of itself not a bad or a good thing. But in this story, it's a bad thing. He loses all of his wealth and becomes a laughingstock. So how did something like having money, which isn't good or bad in and of itself, turn sour so quickly? The key comes in verse 12. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Read the rest of the verses on your own, and you'll see that the rest of the passage talks about abandoning God and not finding our sanctuary, our safety in Him. So for the rich man in this illustration, God wasn't on the radar. His fortune was his false sanctuary. So our aspirations, even inherently good things, can be tainted by our messed up nature. So what gives? How am I supposed to figure out if my emotions are on track and pointed towards God's throne instead of something else or myself? God has gifted us a part of him to help with this, the Holy Spirit, to help us live the way he intended when he created us in the beginning. The Holy Spirit, having been given to Christ's followers upon the acceptance of salvation, is the glue that binds our hearts to God. And this is where we can start to really focus in on what God has called us to do. You see, when we submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit, something happens. The Spirit begins working in our minds and hearts, the essence of our being, to start aligning our aspirations with that of God's. Discerning God's call, then— becomes easier and easier as the Holy Spirit continues to mold your heart into one accord with God's. It's never going to be easy, though. Just take it from Jesus. When faced with death, he still says to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, although his own person with own emotions and feelings, yields all of that and defers to the Father's will. He shows us what it looks like when a call doesn't line up with our feelings and emotions and obeys through the power of the Holy Spirit with aligning his aspirations with that of the Father. All of this just goes to show us that there is no formula for figuring out God's call for you. Emotions and feelings are good tools given by God, but wait, they might be tainted by a fallen heart.
and look to Jesus. Nobody is going to claim that Jesus had a fallen heart, yet his feelings didn't line up with the work of the Spirit at that moment. Discerning God's call for your life isn't going to be easy, and you are going to need help, some referees, so to speak. Next week, we'll wrap up by thinking about how God's Word, the church, and prayer help in discerning God's call in our lives. We will also look at some ways we get in the way of discerning God's call. All right. Before I get to my cross-examination, I just have to say, you know, I, I think my memory failed. I think I actually called the coin toss last week, but I lost. So uh, we're going to have to have you call the next two in a row. Okay. Let's, let's remember to make a note of that. Okay. Um, I note don't know. Is made. Is that accurate? Did I did I call it? Yeah, episode I think one? it is. Okay. I think it is. I think that's right. Anyways, because uh, I just remembered, I called tails again, and you know, tails never fails. So you call it two weeks in a row, bound to work fifty percent of the time. That, there you go. And that's how a coin toss works. Um, anyway, so uh, a couple questions here. First of all, in part of your uh, thesis. And this may have just been a little bit of the phraseology, uh, but you said that God has gifted us a part of him, a part of him being the Holy Spirit. Now, is the Holy Spirit not entirely and completely God? The Holy Spirit is entirely and completely God. So we're getting into the the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And so that is, that's something that's difficult to understand is that the Holy Spirit is fully in its nature, God, in his nature, God, but he is his own person apart from the Father and and Jesus, the Son. Right. right. Okay. So it, uh, so it was just then a, a little bit of the phraseology. It's not, it's not just yeah. a part of God. It is God. Yeah. The, the Holy Spirit is God. And so whenever you're talking about the concept of the Trinity, you're always going to have uh, issues with, with language, right? Right. So, yeah, that was, that was great to clarify for, for, the, for our audience. Um, now, being that God has gifted us with his spirit, so the Holy Spirit, who he is fully and completely God, dwells in every believer. That means that God himself has come to live within every believer. So is that that holy spirit of God that lives in us uh, that is the the backbone the basis by which we uh, try to guide our decisions and our discernment um, is listening to that holy spirit within us. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And so I wish it were easy enough where we could just say listen to the holy spirit, but the reality is is that we have fallen flesh that we live in, and, and God has gifted us our bodies, and our bodies are good, but they do exist in a fallen nature. And so we are always tainted by that. So whenever we have the Holy Spirit with us, we have God with us. Until that moment in eternity, whenever we are gifted a new body, we're always going to have a struggle with trying to figure out what is coming from the Spirit which is God and what is coming from uh, our bodies, which is a good thing, but is a fallen thing. And so that's, that's, that's the issue here. Right. Okay. So uh, it, is, it is starting to get a little bit complex, this whole yeah. idea of discernment. So we have God's spirit that dwells in us and he's leading us uh, you know, in, into, into righteousness. We have our own fallen nature, our sin nature that we're all born with that is leading us into, into all kinds of misbehavior. 
We also have our emotions, which in and of themselves, uh, I think, are somewhat innocuous. You know, they can be one way or the other, but just having the emotions, having the, the feelings is something that God created us with. And so we're trying to listen to our emotions, listen to the Spirit, try and discern what is from God and what is from our fallen nature. And... You know, we we have these incurably wicked hearts, and you you said something later on that there is no formula for figuring out God's call for you. And now I I I do agree that it, there's no like set in stone formula, but I do think that where we are, we are the beneficiaries of uh, some of the great church leaders and theologians down through the centuries mm-hmm. um, who have kind of written down and, and made available to us some of the things that they used in discernment that can be helpful, um, not necessarily an exact formula. It's not like Pythagoras, you know, writing down the A plus A squared plus B squared equals C squared, and it works every single time, yeah. which actually doesn't work every single time when you get into the curvature of the earth and all that stuff. But anyway. Uh, you, Nerd. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to – I guess the question is, are you familiar with um, the works of people like John Wesley or Ignatius Loyola down through the centuries? I'm not exactly familiar with them, but someone that I am familiar with uh, that I'm actually reading his, one of his books right now, it's called Spirit of the Disciplines, is uh, a philosopher, Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard. And so uh, I think that might be a good segue to for me talking about about him. Uh, so Dallas Willard uh, in Spirit of the Disciplines is basically saying, yes, we have this fallen nature and we have the the spirit of God, but we can train ourselves and we can train our bodies with help from from God to be able to hear from the Holy Spirit more easily because what we do is we're minimizing our sin nature uh, a little bit by training and through discipline, right? And so some of the disciplines that he talks about uh, are uh, like fasting uh, and solitude. Um, and I, he doesn't specifically talk about it, but one, one that we talk about all the time is daily Bible reading, right? Being able to say no to some things and say yes to other things helps train us and through that training, we minimize the the fallen nature of our flesh, and we're able to hear from the Spirit a little bit more strongly. Excellent. So Dallas Willard, um, you know, it, not putting it on the same level as Scripture, but some of these men, Ignatius Loyola has a similar uh, writing that he wrote down called the Spiritual Exercises, mm-hmm. um, where it's it's a series of prayers and meditations and, and uh, you know, like you said, daily Bible readings where um, he basically sought to find out what is God saying to me right now? What, how is Jesus leading me in this moment of my life? Yeah. And uh, another, you know, more contemporary author that uh, I've been reading is, is Gordon Smith, The Voice of Jesus. And it's, it's kind of along the same thing that you were talking about of, of trying to figure everything out with everything that we have going on in our beings. Um, And then another tool that you bring up, uh, which I think you're going to talk about more next week, is the body of believers, the the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. Now, 
the just kind of the last thing I want to say here is being surrounded by a community of believers can be a benefit to us in discerning a call from from God. But we have to remember that these are also individuals with fallen natures, with incurably wicked hearts, and we don't know how they are discerning, how they are hearing from Jesus, how they are uh, being, you know, how that battle between their sin nature and the Holy Spirit is going within them. So as we uh, allow these people to influence us, it's sort of like a line that we have to walk along where it can be a great asset to us, but it can also be a great danger to us. Whereas we can tend to go along with groupthink and, you know, not necessarily a, a leading from God, but a leading from men. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that is a danger. Just like last week, we talked about uh, the danger of our feelings and how what we feel has taken on even more significance in our current culture. So, too, has tribalism, right? The idea that uh, I have a tribe that gives me identity. And so, that's the backdrop, you're right. In, in our time and culture, we have an issue with tribalism where people are dividing themselves along fallen lines. And so, that's the backdrop. And as we move into talking about using our, our body of believers that we're in covenant communion with, especially like if we're members of a church, we have to, to realize that we do have this disposition towards tribalism and that everyone is is fallen, right? And so once again, the body of believers is a tool that God has given us. And I can't overstate like the tools that God has, has given us. It is not God. Right. If if someone from your church says, I think you should be doing this, that's not a call from God. God could be using that to bring you closer to him, but you shouldn't just drop everything and say, yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing because so-and-so said it. My pastor said it. Well, your pastor is great, but him uh, going to divinity school did not give him the monopoly on what God's will is. <laughs> Right. So remember that that just like our feelings are tools, so too are the people that we're in covenant communion with. And really, I'm I'm going to argue next week that they are kind of the um, they're one of the final things you go through if you're making a big decision. And you're trying to figure out if this is God's call in your life. That they are one of the the last people that you go to, and they are going to affirm you in that. And so. You don't get that call from them, but they will affirm that call. And so that gives you a preview of where we're going. All right. Talk a little bit more about what what you're going to build on with that uh, in our next episode. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap up this talk about God's calling in life by by doing that. I'm going to talk about affirmation that comes from your church, from prayer that you have, and from God's Word. Uh, and so whenever you think that you've discerned a call from God, there, there should be places that you go to ensure that, that you are hearing from God. Because if you're not hearing from God, then it, it's, you should be able to figure that out by going through the Bible, going through prayer, and going to those people that you're in covenant relationship with in your church. But in that, I want, I'm going to come back around to this idea of God's sovereignty that we touched last week and explore that just a little bit more and how uh, no matter what we do, 
God is sovereign over all of it, and it's not up to us, and that's of great comfort to us. Excellent. All right. So uh, we're going to shift now to my thesis, which is going to be talking about what you and I desire. Uh, You know, one of the most famous rhetorical questions ever uttered was said when the Lord Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and Pilate asked him, what is truth? Now, down through the centuries, Pilate generally has been given a bad rap by church leaders, and uh, history is actually kind of unclear about what actually happened to him in the decades following the crucifixion. We know about when he was relieved of his office, but not much else. Some of the traditions say that he went and killed himself, while the Coptic Church actually says that he became a Christian and lived out his days in quiet anonymity following the Lord. Yet, while we won't really take the time to get into all the details, uh, there is actually several things in the Gospel texts that cause me to think that Pilate might have understood more, far more than he's generally given credit for. One such example is the title that Pilate wrote to place on the cross. He wrote it personally, which means that he wrote in three languages, by the way. A very interesting uh, administrator. But we find in John 19, verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And you and I might just read that and pass over it and move on. Except we note how upset the Jewish leadership gets with this. We read on to find in verse 20, Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Or, Quite literally, he said, what I have written will always be written, is the literal uh, rendering there. So they want him to change the way that it's worded, but he refuses. What's this about? What's going on here? Well, Pilate is getting back at them. You see, it's well known that the Jews have a fascination with acrostics. Certain psalms are written as acrostic, and they're just, they're big time into acrostics. Well, if you look at what Pilate wrote in Hebrew, the acrostics are very revealing. The Hebrew reads, Yeshua, Hanatsarai, Vimelech, Ha-Yehudim, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That's what he wrote. But if you take the acrostics, it spells Yodhi Vodhi or Yahweh, however you want to pronounce the unpronounceable name of God. In other words, Pilate is declaring him Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and he's ascribing God's name to him. Now, does that mean he believed it? Not necessarily. He might have just been doing this out of spite because the Jewish leaders had backed him into a corner, and he knew that this would drive them nuts. And it it did. Personally, I I think that's kind of fun. Yet this is also one of a number of clues that suggest to me that Pilate might have had more truth than even he knew when he asked his now famous question. And if that's the case, 
it really should come as no surprise because God is quite generous with the dispensing of truth, revealing it freely as it is desired. And we don't know whether or not Pilate was really a seeker of truth. He might have been. And the Lord Jesus is responsive to the seeker of truth. He taught truth. He preached truth. He prophesied truth. He defended truth. He demonstrated truth. He exemplified truth. He was truth. And God has always been generous with truth. Prior to his sending his son to preach the truth, his love compelled him to send prophets to proclaim his words, even though he knew that most people would reject those life-giving words, knowing that his sent ones would encounter the wrath of the controllers. Much is often made of the commissioning of Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah 6. There's recorded there this glorious scene with the seraphim and Isaiah saying, I have unclean lips, and the seraphim cleanse him and God says, who will we send? And Isaiah says, send me. And, and God does. What a glorious scene it is. But we often forget how God sends him. He says to him in Isaiah 6 and verse 9, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. In other words, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. You will dispense the truth. And those few who accept it, I will heal them. But in large part, they will not want it. They're not going to like you. They do not want truth. And how accurate this is, that God freely and generously dispenses truth. Anyone can have it if they so desire, but they do not want it. Even those who are Christians, even those who are leaders in church buildings today, largely do not want truth. Sure, they have just enough truth to save them from eternal perdition, the truth about who Jesus is, but frequently, that's all they desire. How often have you heard a person say, Gee, I wish I knew more Bible so I could know more of God's truth, or I want to read the scriptures more, and yet they don't. That person doesn't truly desire more truth because if they did, they would have it. It's freely available, and they don't take it. My friend, you and I live at a point in history where we have an advantage over every other generation that came before us, and that is that we carry in our pockets on our phones, multiple Bibles. The Word of God has never been more available in all of human history, and yet it's still neglected. It's still ignored. That man or that woman who says, I wish I knew more Bible, they have every opportunity to read it, and they don't take it. They could quite easily open up their phone and read a chapter or a psalm at any time. Instead, what do they do? They open their phone to post a selfie to Instagram, to share a picture of the mediocre grilled cheese sandwich they made for lunch, to tweet the clever joke they came up with, to watch a funny video, or to simply scroll mindlessly through a social media feed until something catches their attention. Even church leaders will spend more of their time streaming on Facebook Live about some activity or attending a conference about how to implement some new program or practice that emulates successful secular businesses. 
or having team meetings to micromanage the teams under them, or reading 200 pages from the latest best-selling Christian author in favor of reading and soaking in the life-giving truth of the Word of God. In fact, a 2014 survey of 5,000 evangelical pastors in the United States found that less than 15% of them read and studied their Bible outside of preparing for their sermons. Less than 15% that were reading the scriptures daily just to soak in God's truth. So I suppose that we should not be that surprised when most pew people don't love the word and desire truth, when we realize that most pulpit people don't either. And what this demonstrates is a lack of desire for truth. The Spirit of God is available and eager to impart spiritual truth to all who desire it, but he is limited by our free will. In the words of our friend Camrock, a closed mouth don't get fed. The closed heart gets nothing. The divided heart and the fearful heart gets very little. The receptive heart gets some. The hungry heart gets more. And the desperate and contrite heart gets much. Which heart do you have? We each have the exact amount of truth that we desire. Precisely. I'm going to ask questions here in a second, but all of that is just echoing something that I think that I've had in my heart for a while. And I think that the Spirit has just put in me. So I'm glad that you that you talked about that. I do agree with you that I think that people have the exact amount of truth that they desire, and that should be convicting. It's convicting to me to hear it out loud, and it should be convicting to Christ followers and them asking themselves, am I actually desiring truth as much as I should be uh, or as I want to in my head, but does my heart. All right, so let's let's go back now to the first part, and you, and you talked a lot about Pilate, and that was some great information. Again, I'm a nerd, so <laughs> I loved learning about all that from you, about how he wrote with the acrostic in the Hebrew. You talk about Pilate as if he knows more. Well, we don't know what happened to Pilate, right? But uh, you talk about him as if he knows more than maybe what he actually knows in his head. Like maybe what he what he knows in his heart is more than what he knows in his head. And how can how can someone have truth like that and not know it, quote unquote, know it? Uh, well, I don't know that the the narrative is clear that he doesn't know it. Right? Like he. Uh, so let's he, just say generally. Okay. Uh, not just Pilate, but can, is it possible for someone to to know something in their essence and their being, but not know it in their head? Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely think that think that that's possible. Um, you know, truths about whether God exists. A person may not necessarily believe in the Christian God, but they still believe in a Creator. They still believe in a higher power, and that that you know that person might have certain things to figure out about who God is and and what God uh, does and what God has done in the world um, and in in the lives of His followers. But they they might just look at the tree outside and say, you know, there's there's no way that that happened by accident. There's no way that 
the complexity of life just randomly occurred. There has to be a creator behind it. So that person has a certain level of truth. They may not realize it or acknowledge it. In the forefront of their mind, they might just say, you know, well, I want to be uh, I, I want to be seen as an intellectual. So yes, I'm going to say, you know, I just believe in the Big Bang theory and and uh, everything happening by by random chance. But in their heart of hearts, in in the deepest parts of their being, they may know that um, that that's not the case. Um, so that I I think that uh, it's definitely possible for a person to to have a certain amount of truth and not quote unquote know it. Yeah, I think it's important to to point out that that is like a doctrine in the Bible, right? It's not just Colin with conjecture, right? Like the Bible teaches, uh, I think I'm pretty sure as Paul, he's he's writing about folks that what what about people that don't know um, that don't know Jesus, like don't hear about Jesus, right? And and Paul teaches that that everyone has been the Father has revealed himself through other means, which makes no one an innocent person. So uh, that is a biblical doctrine. And so Colin just put great words to it, not out of the Bible, but it is truth, right? That is truth. And I want to make sure that they, that gets backed up. Shortly after that, he you say, the Lord Jesus is responsive to the seeker of truth. It made me think about uh, two things. One is the parable that Jesus tells about uh, someone coming in the middle of the night and knocking, there will be an answer there, right? The genuine seeker of truth will get the answers um, from God. It also made me think about Matthew 7, 22 and 23, which says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, meaning Jesus, God, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So on one hand, it looks like everyone that's coming after Jesus is going to get the answers that they need. And then on the other hand, it looks like there are people that came after Jesus and he's saying that he never knew them. My head is split over this. What? How do you reconcile these two? Well, I mean, what he says is, I never knew you, right? So they may have known him, you know. It's one thing to know someone else, but it's a different thing for that person to know you. Like, I know Donald Trump. I know who he is. I know LeBron James. I know these people. I, I you know, I can look at LeBron James's Instagram stories and see what's going on in his house. I know him. But he doesn't know me. He doesn't know a thing about me. And I think that that's part of what Jesus is saying there, is these people are doing all these things in their name, saying, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. But Jesus is saying, yeah, but I don't know you. You haven't let me into your life. You haven't let me be the Lord over what you do and how you live. You have just gone about doing these things that seemed good to you and said, I'm doing this because I know him. But the reverse is not necessarily true for those people. Yeah. So 
if we were to extend your metaphor of I know LeBron James because I can see his Instagram story and see everything he's at his house, you haven't been to LeBron James's house. You haven't knocked on his door to use uh, to use the. Parable. I'm pretty sure I'd be arrested if yeah, I went and knocked on his so. door. I think he's got armed guards and stuff. So, but, but what's great about Jesus is uh, he keeps uh, open door policy, right? Right. So you might be able to to let's say read about Jesus in the Bible uh, like you were watching an Instagram story, but um, you can actually go to Jesus's house. And have a relationship with him. Well, the great thing is Jesus wants to come to your house. He, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. He wants to come in to our hearts. He is there knocking. And he wants that relationship with us. All we have to do is open the door and let him in. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we, we talk about seeking God and all this stuff. The Bible says there's no one who seeks God in reality. Uh, you know, God seeks us. God does the seeking. And when he comes and seeks us, he allows us to have as much of him as we want. You know, he's going to come over to our house and we can ask him to, you know, to go home at any time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he's not going to impose his will on us. He is, he is there. He is available if we want him. All right, so I think we've uh, maybe exhausted that metaphor. So sure. we'll move on. But I think that was, um, I think that's a good way of, of picturing it. So this is my last thing uh, before we start wrapping up. You say, yes, they have just enough truth to save them from eternal perdition, the truth about who Jesus is. But frequently, that's all they desire. So throughout this, you talk about how we could find truth. And you talk about things that we do instead of finding truth. But why do you think people, even holy people, limit their desire for truth? Why are people doing this? I mean, I think that there's myriad reasons why, right? It's easier, number one. It's easier to just scroll through a social media feed or just, you know, say, oh, I'm just going to hang out with people. I'm just going to watch the game. Instead of I'm going to read and study my Bible today for an hour or how you know whatever it is, it's it's easier. The second thing is I think the more uh, the more that we learn, the more that uh, we uh, seek out God's truth, the more that we learn uh, about God, and more that we grow closer in that relationship, the more He reveals about us, hmm. and the stuff He uncovers about us. It's pretty ugly. He he point he's pointed stuff out to me that's like, man, this is just vile. And <laughs> thank you, Lord, for continuing to to just dwell with me and walk with me uh, in some of my struggles. And I think that that's part that's another part of the reason why people don't want it because they don't want to be exposed by God. Yeah. They don't want that. Uh, you know, God to come in and say, hey, I'm happy to be here with you. By the way, this thing you're doing here, this way that you're acting there, this way that you're thinking here, treating this other person, this stuff you're looking at over here, that's disgusting. That is disgusting. And it makes me sick. And <laughs> it's... That's what it, it is. It's though. hard. Yeah. Right? It, it's, it's, it's easier to avoid it. 
it's more pleasant to avoid it and to just kind of live in our uh, social media bubbles where we can control what uh, what filter we put on everything and what face we present to the rest of the world. But we can't be that way with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the truth is uncomfortable. We talked about that last week, right? And so Colin just gave some good examples uh, and actually expounded how uncomfortable the truth of Jesus is. And I just want to reiterate the fact that it can be uncomfortable for us or we can submit to that authority and that truth, and it can be so sweet in its comfort that it's not all about us, right? So there, there's a positive side to that. It takes getting through the uncomfortable first. Right. So I think I'm just going to make a note here um, before I let you talk about your building blocks for, for the next couple weeks, that you talk a lot about biblical authority as if it is truth, and we never establish that the Bible is truth. I'm sure that'll be something that we talk about in the future. But I just want to, for the for the person that may not be a Christian and that might not be your assumption that the Bible is truth, we aren't taking that for granted. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, later in this podcast in a, in a future episode. Yeah, I think that that would be a, a, an excellent uh, thesis topic yeah. one day for for either one of us. Uh, yeah. So to, to so where are you going as you uh, start to wrap up this uh, these idea of truth? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to kind of try and just continue to build on these uh, these these uh, these theses. Is these theses? What's theses. The word? They're gonna. <laughs> they're just gonna try and continue to build on one another. Uh, so, um, what I'm gonna talk about next week is things and certain traditions that cause rejection or even just resistance to truth, and the effect that that resistance has on our hearts and on others around us. And then I'm going to get a little bit uh, very specific, uh, actually, uh, and I'm going to talk about the church and the people in the church who have very sadly sentenced themselves to a life as a pew person, to life as pew people. And I'll talk about more what that means, but essentially it comes down to having truth but not proclaiming it, saying that's someone else's job. My job is to just sit here. Okay, and since you said the key word pew, we're going to start to wrap it up. And as the music plays, uh, which limits my time, let me say a couple more things. First thing, remember, subscribe, share with a friend, share with your family if this has blessed you in some way. We're just two guys talking about life, theology, and culture, but we hope that our conversations bless you. If you have comments or questions, maybe about what Colin said about being pew people, since he's going to talk about that uh, in the next little bit, or about what I said about having a fallen heart, or any other questions or comments that you may have, remember that you can submit that through the Anchor app. You can do a verbal question or comment through the Anchor app at uh, anchor.fm slash doublecheck, as well as emailing us doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Any closing thoughts here, Colin? No, uh, I think it's been a a great episode, and I can't wait to, to record some more of these. All right, and we will see you soon. 